And additionally, if maybe uh, you could be accommodating as necessary, there were some people standing in the back earlier and just make sure spaces are available for, for people. We did have a, a talk with our landlord this past week about expanding our, our space and more seating. So things are moving forward, but it doesn't change anything today. So I uh, appreciate you guys being flexible and patient. If you've got a, a Bible or, you know, if it's on your phone or your tablet, um, get over to Psalm 100 and one, 149. And if you need a Bible, um, there's some in the back. Just put your hand in the air. Psalm will, will bring one to you that you can borrow or steal. Hey, John, could you get me a cup of water, please? Thanks. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all the godly ones. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, come to you today thankful for your word, thankful that we can praise you, thankful that we fear no power to shut down our praise. Thankful, God, that you instruct us in how to praise you well. Focus our hearts on your word this morning that we might hear them and live them and obey them. That I might preach faithfully, that we might all, even myself, hear faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. According to a uh, New York Times piece from yesterday, the uh, Chinese province of Xinjiang where the predominant uh, resident, or well, it is where most Uyghurs uh, reside, is no less right now than a suppressive police state. The author of the piece writes, and I'm going to quote at length here, because it's, it's striking. He writes, imagine that this is your daily life. While on your way to work or on an errand, every hundred yards or so, you, pla you pass a police blockhouse. Video cameras on street corners and lampposts recognize your face and track your movements. At multiple checkpoints, police officers scan your ID card, your irises, and the contents of your phone. At the supermarket or the bank, you are scanned again. Your bags are x-rayed and an officer runs a wand over your body, at least if you are from the wrong ethnic group. Members of the main group are usually waved through. You have had to complete a survey about your ethnicity, your religious practices, and your cultural level. 
about whether you have a passport or relatives or acquaintances abroad, and whether you know anyone who's ever been arrested or is a member of what the state calls a special population. The personal information, along with your biometric data, resides in a database tied to your ID number. The system crunches all of this into a composite score that ranks you as safe, normal, or unsafe. Based on those categories, you may or may not be allowed to visit a museum, pass through certain neighborhoods, go to a mall, rent an apartment, apply for a job, or buy a train ticket. Or you may be detained to undergo re-education, like many thousands of other people. According to an article in The Guardian late last month, that number might be as much as 120,000 or more who are in re-education camps. So why the problems? China is actually a, a nation made up of a number of ethnicities. The most prominent, what we tend to think of as Americans when we think of the Chinese, are the Han. And there are at least, however, 54 other ethnicities, none of which is greater than 1.5% of the population. And, and from the earliest days of the Communist Party, the government has tried to shape the cultural identity of China in decidedly Han and communistic terms. The Uyghurs are a Turkish people. The province is in the far northwest of China. They are predominantly Muslim, and so for both cultural and religious reasons, they are probably not inclined to become more Chinese in the way the government defines Chinese. Recently, a young Uyghur gentleman who had come to Beijing, probably to enhance his financial prospects or education, began studying English and Christianity with an American living abroad. One day, this young man, likely raised as a Muslim, professed faith in Christ. But soon thereafter, he was arrested by the authorities and sentenced to one to ten years in prison. For what? We don't know. The information is impossible to get. Uh, perhaps the Chinese viewed him as a subversive, since he was Uyghur. Um, I've seen little evidence. I'm not an expert, but I've seen little evidence that the Uyghur are particularly dangerous people, uh, though they do have sympathizers as, as a predominantly Muslim community. They have sympathizers with other Islamic movements, for sure. Of course, if this was the case, little did the Communist Party understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ that he'd recently accepted as true would be a force that would lead him to submit respectfully to the governing party. Maybe the party was aware of his new faith and, and objected to his being proselytized by a foreigner or in public, which is generally prohibited. Or simply, they were frustrated that he was studying with a foreigner. The party has often been capricious and uh, seemingly random in its enforcement of law, particularly about religion. It's impossible to know. The American, though, who is a dear friend of mine, is angry. He's frustrated, probably a little confused and, and scared. His friend is in prison, and he doesn't know what's become of him. Wherever this man is right now, whatever his disposition, whatever reasons for that disposition, one might fairly ask, what ought his response be? And I think if I could share with him one thing, if, if I could share with him one quick message, I would point him perhaps to Psalm 149. Like each of the last five psalms, this psalm 
has a very simple message. Praise the Lord. But the reasons for praising the Lord are especially relevant for this brother of mine I've never met. And that is that we are to praise God because we are his beloved people. And we are to praise God because he will bring justice upon every disobedient and wicked people. The psalm breaks into two nice sections. The first section, verses 1 through 5, is framed by two references to the godly. They appear again in verse 9. And it's clear that the emphasis of this psalm, more than the previous three we've looked at in this short series of psalms, is on God's people. We talked about the godly a little bit last week, and I want to say a little bit more. Um, They are the people who are characterized by God's chesed, his loving kindness. It's a Hebrew word that we just don't have a great one-to-one English word for. So you pick up different translations, you see it translated differently. Uh, Loving kindness, uh, covenant faithfulness, loyal love, um, all different sorts of variations on that. And I said last week that they are the people on whom God has bestowed his loyal, faithful, unbending covenant love. And that's true but probably not as directly true as I'd like. And so if I could explain that a little better, uh, the emphasis I, I, I made, it probably would have been better placed on what the people have rather than what they receive. As one commentator put it, the idea, it means being loved by God with his covenant love and so being devoted to him with a love of the same kind. So the, the emphasis really is on the, the, the fact that the people have this sort of covenant love. But they do only have that covenant love because God first bestowed that sort of faithful, enduring love on them. So if I could reattach that emphasis, that's how I would. They are people who have a faithful, undying devotion to Yahweh. Precisely because Yahweh had a faithful, undying devotion to them. It's a beautiful word and it's a beautiful picture. And so after the perfunctory hallelujah, even if we can even say hallelujah, praise the Lord is perfunctory, but that's how every one of these psalms that we're looking at in this series begins and ends, the psalmist enjoins the listeners to lift up a new song among the godly. The fact that the song is new uh, forces us to ask a question. That why do we need a new song? What is new about it? Uh, the expression new song appears nine times in the Bible. Seven times in the Old Testament. Six times in the book of Psalms. And of the seven in the Old Testament, two are singular. And, and when a singular individual is singing that song... Um, it's usually about deliverance from enemies. And so he is saved, and, and so he sings a new song for the occasion. The other five are corporate. And when it's used in a corporate context, there's always an element in which the rest of the world is able to observe God's work and generally are asked to praise God's work. Praise God for his work. And in Psalm 149, 
we clearly see other nations involved, but, but what is the connection? Because there isn't an obvious, you know, let the nations praise God or, or something like that. But we do have the nations in place. So what is the connection? Well, we're going to sort that out by looking at the next four verses. Verse 2 focuses squarely on, on Israel and, in, and urges the nation to be glad in its maker, its king. And, and it's kind of fascinating if you stop and, and think about it for just a second. Because elsewhere in the Bible, and we saw this even in this very series... God is considered to be the rightful king of the universe precisely because he created the universe. But now the writer focuses on God creating Israel. God created Israel in effect from nothing. From one man, Jacob, his father, Isaac, his father, Abraham. And he promised to make them into a people that would bless the world. He did it for his own purposes and his own reasons. Time and time again, God explicitly states that he didn't choose Jacob. He didn't choose the Israelites because they were particularly holy or particularly good or particularly strong or have any of the qualities or characteristics that we might uh, desire to see of a people or a people group. Whatever his reasons, they're, they're internal to him. And so just as God is king of the universe, he is uniquely the true king of Israel. Because all of the people, because of all the different peoples in the world, he uniquely made Israel. And the making of Israel culminated in the, was culminated in the Exodus event. Jacob and his 12 sons, most of you probably know the story, and their families traveled to Egypt to escape a great famine that was plaguing the ancient Near East. But after a number of years there, uh, they were enslaved and their fate was imperiled. And God famously delivers them from the hand of a tyrannical Egyptian king, leading them out of Egypt under the guidance of his prophet, a man named Moses. And so it's no surprise then that the psalmist urges the people to praise God with dancing and instruments, particularly the, the tambourine. Because dancing and the tambourine in particular are closely associated in the Bible with women celebrating military victories. In the book of Judges, Jephthah's daughter celebrates his victory with dancing and tambourine. In the book of 1 Samuel, women from all across Israel celebrate David's victory over the Philistines with dancing and tambourine. But most famously, as Israel was delivered from Egypt and God destroyed the armies of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, Moses' sister Miriam and the other women danced with tambourines and sang a song of God's deliverance. And I don't think that it's coincidental that in discussing Israel's creation, we have a hint back to Miriam's celebration. See, God... His creation of his people was an act done very much against Egypt. And it was designed to put the other nations of the world on notice that Yahweh was God over all gods, Lord over all lords, worthy of fear and deserving of worship. And this is the connection between the nations and the new song here in Psalm 149. Israel's very existence demonstrated to nations far and wide the dangers of rejecting Yahweh and the blessings of embracing him. And perhaps no greater blessing is the one in the first line of verse 5. 
For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. It might be taken for granted that, that God should delight, or God's people should delight in him. Although, I'm not sure it's taken for granted nearly enough. I think something very much missing from the American church, at least in particular, that's the only context I have, is the idea that we should find our joy in God, that we should delight in God, that being in connection with God should make us happy. And I don't mean bubbly or, or cheery or peppy, and I certainly don't mean that when circumstances dictate otherwise that you're just inappropriately bubbly. Um, that's annoying. <laughs> just, um, but, but being happy doesn't mean that we don't feel or react in other ways too. No one needs a phony dose of optimism. It's annoying. But genuine joy should permeate the Christian's life because their joy is in something that's unmovable, unshaking, and unchanging. It's in God himself. But possibly even more forgotten than that is, is the idea that God is delighted in his people. Sometimes we say things like God loves everyone, and, that, and that's true in several important senses. But I think that sometimes, even though we're, if we say that God loves everyone and, and we just leave it at that, but we also believe and we also know that God is mad at sin. He hates evil. We know that God is not monodynamic. He's not mono-emotive. It's not like God is just love and that's all he is. Um, and I think that if we make God's love too generic, we get an idea of God having this sort of forced, has-to-love-us kind of love that isn't really very meaningful and isn't really very inspiring. And that's a shame because that is not how the Bible talks about God's love. And here, God is taking particular delight not a generic, universal delight. He's taking particular delight in his people. The people God chose for himself from all the people of the world. The people God set his covenant love upon. The people he moved to know true love themselves. Despite their failings and their faults, God delights in them. If you are a Christian, God delights in you. You make God happy. Not because you're great or good or wonderful, let alone because you're perfect, but God delights in you. Most of us, maybe all of us, probably all of us, have, have deep longings to be enjoyed. We want to know that someone is delighted by us. We spend our childhoods and sometimes much of our adulthood trying to receive the affection and the delight of our parents. We seek out friends and then later significant others and even spouses, hoping to find someone who accepts us and someone who enjoys us, who wants to be with us and just enjoys our company and our time. It, it, so much is this, this thrust that married men and and married women, when they feel like their partner no longer enjoys them, they, they will stray, hoping to find delighted acceptance in the arms of a counterfeit lover. 
Some of us seek it out in other places, uh, in multiple places. We want acceptance. We want desirability. But Christian, if you're a Christian, God desires you. He accepts you. He, He loves you. He delights in you in a meaningful way, in a way that's vastly different than the way he does with those who do not know him or worship him. Don't make God's love so generic that it loses all meaning and and it becomes sort of impotent and dry. There, There is a sense in which God looks down on his church and is filled with pleasure and joy and delight over us. And that's an amazing thing. And also should change how we live in this world, right? It means we don't have to be seeking that acceptance and that joy and that desirability from others because we know we have it and we know we can't lose it. Like the nation of Israel of old, God is choosing a people for himself, not because they are important, not because they're special, but for reasons we can't know and and probably can't even fathom, reasons that are pleasing to him and known only to him. He has chosen us out of a dying world to show the world what blessing looks like. And I think of this young man, most likely in some re-education camp or dank Chinese prison. And I hope he knows that God delights in him. The government doesn't, the the Communist Party does not, and it's likely that his Muslim friends and family back home, if they've heard, or if they were to hear, would perhaps not find him particularly delightful right now. But God delights in him. And that's all that matters. And if everything else seems to be falling apart, this is wonderful. This is worth praising God for. To this man, I would say your circumstances are humble. You have nothing. All around you is broken. But God has adorned you. He has beautified you. He has magnified you with salvation. Your sins are washed away because of the price Jesus has paid. And you are beautiful and delightful in God's eyes. So it's right and it's proper for us to exult In that glory, as the psalmist says. We typically associate glory with God, and that's right. But having set his seal on us, and having called us his own, and having found delight in us, we have received a kind of glory. Even as the moon is illuminated by the sun's brilliance, we who are Christians are reflections of God's radiance. And so we are glorified. That last line of verse 5 is a little debated. Singing for joy on their bed seems a bit out of place here. But the idea seems to be that those who are in a covenant relationship with Yahweh are called on to praise him, even in the simplest and least trying of moments, even when we lay our heads down to rest at night. Verse 6 starts the second half of this passage. And verses 6 through 9 in many ways exhibit the complementary and inverse idea. 
It begins simple enough with the statement that the godly should have the high praises of God in their throats. And also a two-edged sword in their hands. It's a striking change. And the imagery heightens with references to executing vengeance, punishments, chains, fetters of iron, judgment. What is this shift here? What is, what is going on? What's the message? And what does it mean for us? I understand, and I'm certainly not well versed on the history, but I understand that this poem was used at one or more points in history to justify war. During some of the Crusades, at least, it was cited, it seems, if, if not by final authorities like the Pope, at least by those who were trying to persuade the powers that be and some of the propagandists. And to be clear, that was an error. That was mishandling the word of God and using it for one's human, temporal, worldly aims. But on the surface, one could see how the mistake would be made, at least by someone who didn't know the scriptures very well, which is a sad indictment. But to understand why it's an error, we need to dig a little bit further. The primary reason why this is not a call to arms, why this is not a call for God's people to go out and slaughter the, the heathens, is because it misunderstands the moment of Jesus' cross. See, God's people have a different way of relating to God and to the world than before the cross of Jesus. Before Jesus, God primarily dealt with one nation, with Israel. And Israel itself was supposed to be something of a nation state of priests. Uh, it was a whole nation that was an intermediary between other peoples and God. And so if you wanted to see the glory of God, you had to go through Israel to get it. And in a covenant relationship with God, they showed the world what God's goodness looked like. But they were a nation also, and a nation has national prerogatives. And to the extent that Israel was holy and obedient and were God's chosen people, which if you read the Old Testament, you know they failed at very repeatedly. But to the extent that they were doing those things, then no nation had a right to injure them. God promised to hold them still in the land and to protect them and preserve them if they were faithful. And so to the extent that uh, another nation would try to attack them or threaten them or uh, do other sorts of misdeeds on them, they had a reasonable uh, response of defending themselves. And, and they did. They are a nation, after all. That's what nations do. But Jesus became a high priest forever. So that everyone who turns his back on his sin and places his trust in Jesus Christ may be restored into a direct relationship with God. And the people of God no longer compose a single national identity, but a spiritual identity. There are no borders or boundaries that we are protecting. In fact, as one commentator astutely points out, Paul explicitly argues the contrary. Uh, look at places like Ephesians 6.12, where Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the battle is no longer defined by national contours and geography. And if those Christians, or so they they called themselves, had simply reflected on the cross of Christ, they should have known better. Secondly, I'd say there's something clearly symbolic going on in this passage. Or at least, it's subtle, but it is unmistakable once you see it. And, And unfortunately, not in every translation. I hate when they do this, but the words throats and hands in verse 6 are actually singular. A number of modern translations do that. Uh, I imagine they do it because, you know, you've got multiple people. How do they have one throat? Multiple people, how do they have one hand? Um, It doesn't doesn't read very well in English, right? It's sort of awkward. Uh, And so I think they translate them as plurals so that the language flows better. But... I'd argue that they lost something of the metaphor in doing that. Here, all the godly ones, the worshipers of Yahweh, figuratively share a singular throat and a singular hand. And the emphasis, of course, then would be that God's people are acting in unity, praising God as as one and doing whatever they do with this sword As one. But I don't think that the point isn't, this is is poetry, this is metaphor. The point isn't that every single worshiper of God is saying the exact same thing about God at the exact same time. That's not what the psalmist is trying to say. And he's not saying that they all, like, put their hands on the same sword or... You know, it's a metaphor. It's a poem. It's, It's a picture. It doesn't make sense. And... They're not all wielding swords in each of their hands at the same time. They have this singular hand that wields the sword. And then third, and and very significantly, this whole passage has an eschatological tone. Eschatology is the study of last things. When something is said to be eschatological, we mean it's talking about the end of times. And verses 7 to nine seem to be looking forward to a time of final victory. Just as God handedly defeated the Egyptians to create his people Israel, so he will handedly defeat all the wicked nations at the end of history. And yet here there's a sense in which, and it's not the only place we see it in the Bible, but there's a few other places where there's a sense in which God's people somehow play a role in this. What role is that? Well, it's, the scriptures never make it explicitly clear, I don't think. But I'll, I'll say this. While our eyes might get stuck on the sword executing vengeance, if you look more closely, you'll notice that the ideas of vengeance and binding kings and executing judgment, they actually hang on two ideas. Not one. Yeah, they hang on the two-edged sword in the hand, but they also hang on the praises of God in their throat. 
both the praises and the sword combine for the purposes expressed in 7 through 9. So it's not merely the sword, but the praises also that execute vengeance and punishment, that bind kings and nobles, so that execute judgment. In a world that has lost its bearings, that calls evil good and calls good evil, that fails to worship its maker and give him glory, but demands that we worship other gods and other goods and revere other kings, in that context that we live, the act of praising the one true God is a defiant and rebellious act. And when we heap praise on the one God who can save, we are pronouncing God's impending judgment on all who hear it and ignore it. There is another, though, who bears the two-edged sword. The true Israelite, the second Adam, the perfect man. When John sees a vision of Jesus exalted after his resurrection in heaven, he describes him this way in Revelation 1, 12 through 16. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's a strange picture. It's a sword coming out of his mouth. But think about what that is symbolizing. A double-edged sword protruding from Jesus' mouth as if to indicate that his very words, the words which had the power to form this universe from nothing, have the very power to pronounce and execute judgment in one quick Word. The same God who could say, let there be light, can say, let the light be gone. And it is. In fact, in the great climactic battle between good and evil that's described in Revelation 20, I think sometimes you listen to these prophecy gurus, you know, these televangelists and these psychics who mix in Bible truth and stuff. I don't, man, I don't think they've ever read this stuff. Because when you read that great climactic battle, it's a snoozer. Have you read it? All the armies of the earth align with Satan and they surround the saints and they're ready to pounce. And then fire comes down from heaven and they're gone. That's it. It's like one line. There's no big battle. God just destroys them. Because he's God. And his word is powerful to slice and dice. But not unlike our Savior, we too carry a double-edged sword, which likewise is the word of God. The author of Hebrews reminds us that the word of God is a double-edged sword, sharper than any double-edged sword, he says, able to cut to even the division of soul and spirit. In other words, the word of God has the power to absolutely 
pierce our heart of hearts and undo everything that we've been holding on to. What does it say when, when Peter preaches the gospel at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and the other disciples. Peter gets up and he preaches. He tells them the message, the good news about Jesus Christ. That this, this one that they had crucified just days before was in fact the Messiah. Was in fact the Savior of the world. He was risen from the dead. And those who place their hope in him and repent of their sins can receive eternal life. And what does it say? The people were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart by the sword, which is the word of God, the message of the gospel. And so we carry a, a sword, and we carry praises. And those are a message of judgment to a dying world. And yet, also, a message of hope and salvation. If received... then they're incorporated into God's people. And if rejected and ignored, it's a warning of their impending doom. If I could talk to that young man in prison, I would say rejoice. Because the powers that afflict you will come to naught. Every injustice you face will be remedied because we serve a God who will bring justice. So, in fact, preach the gospel. Sing praises in your chains. And you will heap judgment on your accusers. And maybe, in seeing their judgment, they will find salvation. Praise God, though, for the time of judgment is coming. says that this is for the honor of his godly ones. It is a, an honor that God would enlist us in this act of delivering the message of salvation and judgment. God could do all of this himself. I mean, certainly he shows it's possible from time to time. He, Paul, the, the apostle Paul, uh, was on his way to kill Christians and and destroy Christians, and, and Jesus speaks to him from heaven and, and catches him off guard. But God's, in, in his sovereignty, has decided that the way he wants to save people and the way that he wants to pronounce judgment on people is by having his people go and preach the message. What an honor. What a glory that is. Fellow saints, we have reason to praise God. If nothing else in this world is right, if everything seems wrong and insane, we have a God who delights in us. And we have a God who promises surely to put down all that is wrong in this world. It is an unwavering hope that we have. And it can get us through the most trying of times. Let's pray.
Father, make us a people of praise. Make us a people that never, ever find ourselves without reason to sing of your goodness. May we not forget that undeserving as we are, you delight yourself in us. May we be humbled by that fact. But may we also be emboldened by that fact, have confidence in your your goodness and your good purposes to use us to take a message of salvation and judgment into a dying world. Knowing that your word has the power to speak life into dead and dry bones. And so we pray for new life in those that we boldly speak with and talk to. Pray for this young man in Beijing or wherever he is now, that his witness would be bold, his courage would be strong. May these trials of his faith only make him stronger in the grace of Jesus Christ. May his chains be for your glory and for the salvation of many. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.